Hi, this is Michael Beamer, your host here at Gray Matter. And today we have a special episode where we have Betsy Carr, the clinical director of Aspen Neurofeedback. Now, you know Betsy because she has been on other podcasts with me, and she has come in as my co-host on several episodes. But today she is delivering one that she has spent a lot of time putting together, interviewing many people, doing lots of research based on the questions that you ask on the blog, on their Twitter feed, on Facebook, however you get it to us. She listens, I listen, and she's come up with the Digital Dilemma series. She's going to talk about screen time. She's going to talk about intuitive touch operating systems like tablets, on-demand media, the relationship between healthy choices and eating, unhealthy choices and eating junk food and things that hurt your body versus other supplements and eating well that give your body life. She's going to cover all of these in the digital dilemma. Stay tuned. Here we go. Okay. So are we starting yeah, now? Yeah, we're recording. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Gray Matter podcast, where we explore the trauma of life, therapy, and the brain. I'm your host for today, Betsy Carr, and I'm joined by John Vandegrift. How are you doing, John? Good. How are you doing, Betsy? Just fine. Long week, but it's Friday, so I'm happy about that. Me too. Yeah. Well, Michael, our uh, our original host, is not going to be here today, but we're very excited to uh, talk about our topic, which is a digital dilemma, the problems that we as a society are experiencing because of our obsession with media and technology. So what are your thoughts just starting out, John? What do you think about this whole topic and how it affects us? Um, I think I love my Apple TV. Mm -hmm. I love my Netflix. I love my shows. Mm -hmm. And I love that I can just click and yeah. have more just at the tip of my fingers. Right. Um, but in no, I do love that stuff, and that's why it's kind of alarming mm -hmm. uh, how easy it is to just keep watching, binge sure. watching. I love binge watching, and I <laughs> what I, shows do you watch? Uh, Game of Thrones. Oh yeah. Love um, it. what else? What's what are some of the other big ones? Ray Donovan. I just started watching that. That's a really good one. Happy-ish. I definitely recommend that. Although it damns us millennials. Oh no. Uh, it's but it's very smart. Yes. Um, how about you? What do you watch? Game of Thrones is one that I watch. Uh, we just started watching Boardwalk Empire. That's a good which one. Which is fabulous. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of on the flip side of this whole debate. I detest my, my cell phone at times. I mm. wish that I could throw it away. I, I think that I could easily get by without it. And yeah. when I go camping or hiking... I, I love not having it with me. I'll even leave my cell phone at home sometimes, accidentally, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me to be disconnected. And I don't know, like sometimes I feel like I'm really weird because of that, but that's just, I, I wish I could get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways. I'm the opposite. I have yeah. this like at weird, attachment yeah. to my phone. I feel naked if I don't have my phone with me. Yeah. Uh, like I feel vulnerable. Well, and you're in the majority because 
that's how most people feel. And we're kind of here to talk today about why. Why do you feel that way? Because we're big believers that your brain generates all of your behaviors. So what's going on in your brain that's making you so attached to all this media? We're going to try to answer that today. Awesome. We're also going to talk about some other topics that are related, like how digital media absorbs our ability to absorb information, other physiological impacts of media that aren't necessarily related to the brain. And then, I I know this isn't on our outline here, but I actually was listening to, um, to, to some other people discuss this topic And they made really good points about the positive aspects of having all of this information at our fingertips. So I think we definitely need to address that too. Yeah, I have have heard that. And I've heard that television shows Mm -hmm. are actually making us smarter because of the the complexity of the shows and of the characters that we're seeing Mm -hmm. now. It's actually making us more intelligent. Interesting. Yeah, I think it has to do with emotional intelligence. Yeah, right. I was going to say because we don't typically expose ourselves to a wide variety of experiences and maybe it's this vicarious learning that we're doing yeah by watching the television yeah it's like i had somebody ask me about the show friends and how all of their emotions seem so exaggerated on the show right and they asked me well is that what i'm really supposed to be feeling like are Mm, those sort of intense emotions what i'm supposed to be feeling that's profound to I, think it of it is. that way. It is. But and I don't know how to answer that question. Do Are we supposed to feel emotion to that extent? I, I don't think so, no. Yeah, I don't either. I think a lot of it's fabricated, but I think that it's like a caricature of right. what we're supposed to experience. Right, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into our first topic. We're going to talk about the the most prominent issue that we see with our digital media sources and that's the idea of media gratification now for those who feel that that term is unfamiliar what immediate gratification is is having things on our at our fingertips uh, being able to just flip something on like you described earlier immediate gratification is experienced in a much different way in our brains than delayed gratification is. It's like two completely opposite experiences. Different brain centers are involved, which means that there's going to be a strength and weakness depending on which you use more often. The first experiment that was done with immediate gratification is sometimes called the marshmallow experiment. Have you heard yep. of this one? Yeah, yeah. Learned yes. about this one. Yes. So this is a really great experiment. I personally would have loved to partake in the marshmallow experiment. Because you like marshmallows? I love marshmallows. <laughs> Can't beat them. So, okay, I'll ask you after you describe this. Okay. <laughs> so the marshmallow experiment was conducted on children to measure their uh, gratification, their responses in either immediately being able to immediately gratify their desires or being able to delay that gratification. And what it meant 
for children who were able to delay gratification, they tended to have better life outcomes. Their SAT scores were higher. Their level of education tended to be larger than those who um, went after the marshmallows right away. So I'm jumping ahead of myself and giving you the results before outlining the experiment, so I apologize. Um, the marshmallow experiment, a bunch of kids were placed in a room and they were given one marshmallow just placed on a table right in front of them. Now the researchers told these kids, when I leave the room, I won't be able to see you. You can eat this marshmallow now, or when I get back, you can have two marshmallows. If it's still there. If it's still there. Right. Exactly. So, as you can imagine, some children couldn't resist the urge. They popped that marshmallow in their mouth and they were happy as a clam. Uh, the other children had this uh, turmoil of delayed gratification where they just were torturing themselves, trying to get those two marshmallows by waiting as long as they could. Now, as I said earlier, the children who were able to do that got higher SAT scores. Their level of education was correlated with higher levels, so college degrees or professional graduate degrees. Even their body mass index was lower. Wow. So, I didn't know that part. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, then again, if somebody is just popping marshmallows in their mouth all the time. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, and the implications of that make us question what made those kids so special? I th that is the question. Right. right? That's the How do one. I become one of those kids? Because yeah. <laughs> I want those things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want the SAT scores. Yeah. And probably for our parents listening, how, are my kids one of those kids? Sure. Or how do I make them, you know, how do I make them that way? Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's hard to say if it's biological, completely biological or environmental, that age-old debates, but the answer to that question is always likely a combination of the two. Right. But we do know that there are certain areas of our brain that are activated when we seek immediate gratification and when we seek delayed gratification. Were you going to ask me a question about marshmallows before I jump yeah, on this yeah. topic? Yeah, yeah. So uh, would you have taken the one or would you have waited for the two? Mm. I'm talking to five-year-old Betsy right oh, now. Oh <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let me see. Hmm. No, I think that I think that I would have. I think that I would have delayed my gratification. Yeah. I. I'm trying to think of instances where I may have been able to do this as a child, but I can't. I'm not coming up with anything. Maybe I wouldn't have because now <laughs> that I look back, I was kind of spoiled and. Like getting candy at a baseball game or something. I was sure. always like, hey, granddad, give me some quarters. And <laughs> he did. And I got it pretty much right when I wanted. Um, so it's hard to say. What about yeah. you? I probably would have waited, but that's just because I'm not the biggest fan of marshmallows. Oh, yeah. Well, that's... But if it was like a bowl of M&Ms, oh. I would have been in those M&Ms. <laughs> I wouldn't have waited. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about why. Let's talk about what immediate gratification looks like in the brain. So immediate gratification 
is heavily influenced by emotional centers of our brain. It causes the release of dopamine. Anytime we talk about releasing dopamine, we're talking along the lines of a habit-forming behavior. Dopamine is the molecule in the brain that allows habits to form. It's one of the biggest players in addictive tendencies. Um, So when you release that dopamine, you're basically telling your brain it's okay to do this again and again. It's okay to do this. So that habit will form. The habit of immediate gratification will form. So every time you're flipping on your TV or um, checking your phone, that's immediately gratifying and you're releasing dopamine and forming a habit. I'm sure that you might notice this when you mindlessly check your phone. Right. There's times during the day when, and especially at work, which Michael wouldn't be great. (laughs) Michael wouldn't be too happy to hear this, (laughs) but I can't help it. I'm in the middle of a, a, you know, a low part of our something where not a lot of activity is taking place, and I check my phone. I know there's nothing that's going to be there other than what I've seen a million times before, but I still pick it up, flip through Facebook, flip through Pinterest. I have a really hard time avoiding that behavior. Yeah. yeah. It um, it has become an almost automatic response mm-hmm. for the majority of our population. Mm-hmm. And we should probably say that Betsy and myself are both in our mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And so we grew up with phones. We grew up with having Facebook and MySpace and all that stuff. I think that's pretty typical behavior for people our age. You know, and this is just a a side note, but I am seeing the kids who really grew up with it because I remember a time when my dad still had his cell phone in a briefcase that he carried in the car. It wasn't as mobile as ours. And I can remember a time when I didn't have internet or if I accidentally clicked on that internet button on my phone, I was like, crap, I have to take that off. My parents are going to be so mad about these data charges. to access. Yep, I remember that. Exactly. And, uh, but, but today the kids who, who haven't lived life without it, that, those are the ones that I'm really interested to see what's going on on a neurological level. Yeah. And I, that's what we're really talking about right, for a lot of it right. today, right? Yep, definitely. You know, the the thing that I can't speak to as clearly is the effects on the family systems that this technology is having. Yeah. Um, well, it's disruptive. Right. It disrupts the family systems. Right. The way instant gratification uh, affects our brains that sort of pours over into the rest of our life. We Mm -hmm. want immediate gratification with food. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We want immediate gratification in our relationships, uh, and that bleeds into our family relationships. Um, You know, just off the top of my head, thinking about these YouTube videos where these kids go crazy when their parents take away their... Uh, yeah, I, I know, what, you know what, what you're talking yeah, about. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, and that may be fake. I don't know. It's a little yeah. exaggerated. But still, I think it, it it's an exaggeration of something that really happens. Sure. Um, it's a distraction in the household. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes away from quality 
family time. Mm -hmm. I used to, when I was in high school, I had one friend in particular who had limited media time. And this was a girl who was a year older than me. So we're talking about a 16, 17-year-old girl who whose parents still limited the amount of time that she watched TV. At the time, I thought that was mind-blowing, just mm. boggling. What kind of totalitarian parents <laughs> are you even working with here? But she's one of the smartest people I know. And she went on, I think she has her engineering degree and you know, I'm not making the claim that watching TV makes us dumb, but I am reflecting on her parents and how they made it a point to expose her to different things. Because if you're watching TV, it means you're not doing all the other things that you could be to grow your experience. Reading. Your experience bank, right. Spending time with people. Right. Having real experiences. Right out in the real world <laughs> yeah all those real things um so it's just you know it's it's one of those things that when we're younger we think is crazy but now i uh i i appreciate that yeah um, so let's talk a little bit about what immediate gratification does to the brain versus delayed gratification Again, that immediate gratification does cause a release of dopamine. So you're going to form habits based on anything that you gratify yourself with immediately. Um, delayed gratification, on the other hand, involves the areas of your brain that are more calculating. Uh, so for example, the anterior prefrontal cortex is more activated when people waited for a reward. Now your anterior prefrontal cortex, that, that's like reading directions. Anterior means the most forward. Prefrontal means, um, it, it's just an area of our brain that is laying right behind our forehead. And this area is what makes us human. It, it makes us able to evaluate the choices we make. We're not just going off of these animalistic urges, right. but we're able to calculate our choices. So the anterior prefrontal cortex allows us to imagine the future. It allows us to say, if I don't watch TV right now, what could that mean for me later in my life? Or if I don't eat that marshmallow, can I imagine having two marshmallows? How great would having two marshmallows be compared to one? Um, so people with damage to this area or who don't have as strong a function in this area are going to have a really hard time delaying gratification. Right. Does that make so, sense? Yeah. The brain yeah. is like a muscle, right? Right. And if you don't work, work that muscle, it's going to be weak. You got to work it out. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of imagining the future sets off this, um, reminder for me of another person who I've spoken with recently who told me about someone who doesn't have the ability to imagine. It's completely absent. Uh, the pathologies of this person, they were, um, narcoleptic very dysregulated all over their brain 
but one thing that they were lacking was imagination. Wow. I mean, can you imagine nope. not having imagination? Nope. I cannot. I that, know. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, I don't like, it's like, it would be like living without all four of your limbs mm-hmm. or just, I mean, the, I can't, no, I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, she can't read fiction books because wow. she oh can't, gosh. like the plots don't make sense. Yeah. Um, and just relating this back to this topic, it just illustrates the fact that people are lacking that ability. Um, so going back to the marshmallow experiment, a hypothesis that we could form is that kids who went for the immediate gratification may have damage to this, or not necessarily damage, but underdeveloped function in the prefrontal cortex that makes it hard for them to imagine, imagine things in the future. So it's an interesting idea. Right. Imagine what they could achieve. Mm -hmm. And how much of that goes to the other, to, to the outcomes of that study, how much of that goes to their educational opportunities. If they have trouble imagining anything, they're going to have trouble imagining all their achievements in life. Mm-hmm. It's a, that would be a tough situation to be in. Of course, these are all hypotheses. Um, none of this is published in the research. We're just saying it to illustrate that point of how important this brain area is in delaying gratification. In the same way that we can make this area stronger by delaying gratification, we also can make it weaker by seeking immediate gratification. Now the area of the brain that's most important in immediate gratification is what's called the ventral striatum. This is the part of the brain which shows how much you enjoy a reward. It's more strongly activated in impulsive individuals. It's also an area of our brain that's very habit-forming. Again, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the areas that uses dopa- dopamine most heavily. Um, so if you enjoy that immediate gratification more than somebody else, you're going to be more likely to do it again. So there's a variance in the way that people experience a reward. Some people get a really big high off of experiencing a a reward, whereas the same reward might not be felt as strongly by the second person. Sure. And that makes that first person more liable to immediately gratify themselves. So these, so the people that are um, seeking out instant gratification, and that's, you know, they're predominant form of gratification Mm -hmm. they're strengthening a part of the brain that is going to make them weaker in the long run sure that's a really great way to look at it uh really good way to look at it because we get the the most reward from things that uh, you know like cleaning the house doesn't give us as big of a reward as eating a big mac right the unhealthy things have the tendency to um to make that re- to to have a stronger reward, uh, and you can even draw that that line to those of us who are more prone to addiction. 
This area of the brain is, again, one of the strongest areas that are uh, implied in addiction. The ventral striatum, it's, it's part of the most fascinating part of the brain, in my opinion, which is an area called the basal ganglia. And I've actually done research on this area. Um, this area of our brain is kind of trippy because it tells us what behaviors are acceptable and what behaviors aren't. It's like this switchboard in our brain where it says, yes, go ahead and do that behavior, or no, that's not right. And that's the way our habits form. Because when we build up these habits or addictions, that switchboard is constantly telling us yes. Even though the logical side of our brains are screaming no. Um, so basically you're, you're saying that this switchboard in our brain gets overrided mm-hmm. by the gratification we get, the dopamine that gets absolutely. released. Just, it takes over. Yep, absolutely. And it's, it's so trippy. And I use the word trippy because you can extend this conversation into these philosophical realms. If there's an area of our brain that's completely subconscious, we cannot control this. Right. How much of our behavior is truly decided by our conscious mind? In my opinion, not very much of it. I'm doing these things because I know that they're socially acceptable. I know that the words coming out of my mouth are okay. Um, But that's not this conscious thought process that I go into each time I try to speak or each time I try to walk down the street or... All of these behaviors are built upon things that I've done before. The brain automatically takes over with things that it's used to. So I hope that makes sense in the context of what we're talking about. Um, With the immediate gratification, with our media sources, that switchboard is going to be more and more um, likely to be in that, yes, go ahead and do this, the more that we the more that we perform these immediate, immediately gratifying behaviors. Like flipping on the boob tube, yep. watching a bunch boob of our tube. shows, the boob tube. <laughs> Is that an outdated term? I'm like a term? five-year-old like, or like a 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, eating junk food, uh-huh. using drugs or alcohol, yep. any of those things affect yep. this part of our brain. Exactly. The drugs and the alcohol and the, uh, the food is a little more they have these other chemicals in them that exacerbate the whole process sure like um other addictive substances what's that thing in food that like that that chemical it has three letters oh shoot msg yeah yes msg is addictive yes that's like the biggest problem with it um at least I think so. I thought it caused other sorts of like issues. Like cancer or something? I I thought that it was because it was addictive, hmm. that that's why we don't want it in our food. We'll have to uh, look that up. Circle back around with yeah, that Yeah, and one. if anybody knows about that, they should uh, post that on our on our Facebook, Gray Matter yeah. Podcast on Facebook. Just go, go up there and tell us all about it. Definitely. 
So the last brain area or, or function of the brain that I want to talk about, and this, this involves both immediate and delayed gratification, and this will kind of close the, the topic of brain areas involved in, in immediate versus delayed gratification. The intertemporal choice is very important to the way our brains process information. Um, this is how our choices are made based on the timing of the consequences. The area of the brain responsible for, responsible for this is called the medial orbital frontal cortex. The more familiar you are with the reward value of an event, the more that you know that this consequence or this reward is going to happen within a certain time frame, the more likely you are to choose it over less familiar rewards. And that's what this brain area is, uh, is implied with. So one thing I do want to make a point to say is that stress really messes up this pathway. It messes up mm. all of our gratification pathways. Um, it can make our immediately gratifying experiences less gratifying. And uh, in the same way, it can make the delayed gratification experiences less gratifying. Stress just has a tendency to take away our reward value, subtract from a reward value, no matter in what time frame it's given, no matter if it's immediate or delayed, stress will take away the value of either. Um, so stress has the ability to, um, to just really kind of skew our perception on what feels good and what doesn't. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Can you see how that might make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially when you know, I would say the more stressful thing you can do is delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about, um, you know, anything in life with delayed gratification, that can be stressful. Sure. If you're going through college, if you, even if you're trying to finish high school, mm -hmm. uh, those long-term positive consequences are really hard for people to see. Yep. Uh, and stress can make that much sure. harder. How many kids are, are found in the situation where they become so stressed out in college that they lose sight of the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. Um, and that, that's what happens is that it puts, it messes up the communication between these areas of the brain. Wow, it's really interesting. So with all that negative information about immediate gratification and how it can make our brain areas weaker. Let's talk about how to avoid it, right? Yeah. Because we don't, we don't need to be or have immediate gratification. So we want to activate, whenever we're tempted by immediate gratification, we want to activate the opposite brain regions. We want to activate the brain regions that are associated with delayed gratification. One of the biggest ways we can do that is to imagine the negative consequences of immediate gratification. Uh, you know, beyond just what may happen in your brain. For a lot of people, that's not necessarily tangible. 
turning on the TV, for example, let's let's talk about some negative consequences that may arise from immediately flipping on the TV when you get home. One negative consequence that I have always, I can't watch just one show. I ha- When I sit down to watch TV, I better be done with everything else I need to do for yeah. the day because I'm yeah. stuck there. I'm the same way. Yeah. And... Yeah, if uh, if I get home, I know I got to clean the house. Mm-hmm. I got to get done any work I've got uh, before I sit down yep. to watch television because it just it won't happen. And if I it, even if I'm sitting there watching television, I haven't done those things. That's all I'm going to be thinking about. Yep. <laughs> but I still won't get up to do still it. Still not enough. Yeah. Which means that you have to take it one step further. If you don't get up right now and clean your house you're gonna have e coli growing on your kitchen counters it's a dirty kitchen <laughs> yeah you're gonna you're gonna get I sick my kitchen end up doesn't in the have hospital e. <laughs> you know it probably does but that's uh, a maybe. that's a completely other topic you know we were using e coli in my lab the other day so really yeah i may very well have e coli in my kitchen right now Probably brought it home in my lab coat. Yep. You take your lab coat out of the lab? Yeah. What are they <laughs> teaching you? <laughs> we have to, we have to, yeah, we can't leave it there. Oh, my god. I keep mine in my car. Oh, I just you wrote were just it in, in your in car. car. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's okay. It's in the back seat. It stays Good. right there. Okay, from now on, I'll put it in like a trash bag or something. Yeah. <laughs> I was always taught that you're not allowed to take your lab coat out of the lab. That's probably the smart thing to do. Yeah. We also I'll don't call clean your the lab. professors. You yeah. also don't clean the we lab. We also don't clean the lab, right. All yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, those that's a very realistic probability then for you. You're going to end up in the hospital because you're watching too much TV. Yeah. And not cleaning your kitchen. This brings us to, you know, this is a great segue into the next topic we're going to talk about, which is how digital media absorbs our ability to, or impacts our ability to absorb information. This is something you can think about as a negative consequence to avoid the immediate gratification. I'm going to share a terrifying statistic with you and you're gonna think that i'm crazy but this was an actual study this study was done by microsoft and they were measuring the average attention span that americans have these days okay and this i am gonna this is gonna scare me yeah (laughs) it is we have an attention span that is the same time as a goldfish Nine seconds. Nine seconds is the average attention span. Wow. That we can spend on one solid piece of information without getting distracted by our phones or TVs or anything else that's going on in our environment. And that's the average, right? So they're mm-hmm. not saying every person has a... No. But the But that's still the average. So (laughs) there's got to be ones smaller than 9% for that to happen. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Or sorry, nine seconds, not 9%. And then even the the outliers in the positive direction, it can't be more than 30 seconds, you know, because that doesn't, 
mathematically makes sense. Yeah. Unless there's either a really large or a really small sample size. But um, anyways. Wow, it, a goldfish. Yeah. It dropped from 12 seconds in 2000 to eight seconds these days. So eight seconds. Sorry, I got my numbers wrong. You know what's interesting? You know, mm-hmm. you, I bet I can tell you why they are doing this study. Why? Because Microsoft and Apple and all those companies have to know how fast their computers have to be to keep you on them oh, wow. all the time. I didn't even think yep, of that. They gotta know. We got it. This has got to be quicker than nine seconds, so they stay here. Right. Yeah. Wow. Interesting because. Because when my computer's running slow, when a web page is loading, I don't sit there and wait for it. Right. I'm like, forget this. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to do something different. Wow. I didn't even think about why Microsoft would be doing that. Yeah. Fascinating. That's a really good point. So this, this becomes a problem when we're using our computers to study. Uh, I know that I'm not necessarily a student right now, but I'm sure that you use your computer to study and write papers. Um, Now, when we have the ability to instantly look up something on the computer, um, it's great for research papers. But how often do we go to look up a fact while at the same time checking Facebook? Oh, this page is loading, so I'm going to click on Facebook or I'm I'm a pinner I, I look at Pinterest a lot um, why, why not just click on there and just check up just see what's going on and it's not that easy to, to go back into the the paper mode when we're constantly switching to Facebook right that's the biggest and most uh, most easily recognizable way that digital media can impact our ability to absorb information because when you're doing those things, you're not fully paying attention. Um, there's also been studies that when you are on digital media looking up information, there are higher levels of experienced stress and tiredness. So researching your material on a computer is going to make you more stressed and tired than having that same material in a book. And why is that? Uh, You know, I think a lot of it has to do with physiological things. Screens are really hard on our eyes. Um, But also, because we are so tempted and our our distractions are so many when we're on our computers, we're trying to process too much information at once. Yeah. And that's where the, the stress comes in. And, you know, I've also heard that the position that we sit in when we use yeah, these devices right. is prone to cause us stress. Yep. That definitely. sort of uh, hunched over, leaning forward, that is a stress position right. for our bodies. And this is this is a Michael Beamer uh, topic yeah. as well. But when he describes this, he does a really good job because he's sitting there mimicking how we how we use our media sources, our Shoulders are hunched over and even drawn inwards towards the center of our body. And um, our hands are even very close together because we're usually on our phones or these really tiny devices. Mm -hmm. Um, 
our fingers are cramped up and we hunch our bodies over, which impacts the way that our diaphragms can fully fill uh, with air. Um, So that probably the breathing is one of the biggest things because our breathing becomes shallower when we're hunched over. Like I'm sitting here in the position and I'm even a little winded. Yeah. Um, So it can cause these levels. Uh, Physiologically, we feel like we're anxious. Now, it's kind of the same idea. Have you heard that if you smile for like two minutes every day, you'll start releasing endorphins? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's the same thing. If you stay hunched over and in this position that that makes you uh, have shallower breaths and feel a little closed off in the same way your body is going to produce start producing those anxiety inducing chemicals as well so body language the way that we uh, the the actions that we go through have a lot to do with how we feel so another point I want to make, and I don't know if I'm the only one here, but when I try to take notes on my tablet, I get nothing. Like, <laughs> it's not organized. I don't have any information going on. It's just I can't keep up with the amount of knowledge that the instructor is trying to trying to ingrain in yeah, me. yeah. Right. Why is that for you personally? Well, for me, I just have a system. I, when I was a student, I took notes, I color coded, I drew pictures. Drawing pictures was big for me because I wanted to create what, um, what I think of as landmarks in my notes. Yeah. These visual, yeah, these visual reference points where if I can't remember exactly what the information was, at least I can remember that I drew like a little picture of a dinosaur next to this information. And maybe I can remember what was before and after that exact fact I was looking for. That's interesting, Betsy, because that is very similar to how people professionally memorize things. Oh, really? By having landmarks in their mm-hmm. memories, realizing what comes before and after. And those landmarks are outrageous enough, right, like a dinosaur, mm-hmm. that they trigger that memory. It stays right. with you. It's very interesting. And in school, most of the time you don't even have to know the exact facts if you know the context in which it was in, the before and after, you can kind of BS what the instructor is asking you anyways. At least that for like short answer questions where you have to respond with a written answer. Now, now this whole idea really impacts people of our generation, in particular college-age students who are becoming more and more exposed to digital copies of textbooks. They're yeah. cheaper. First and foremost, yep. they're cheaper. Yeah, I'm in school right now, and that is the trend. That's the way things are going. How much did you spend on your textbooks this semester? Uh, probably like 400 oh, bucks, it's something like, like that. But it's usually between two and five. Yeah, right, right. For me, in grad school, I stopped buying books 
I was like, forget this. I have friends who will buy my books or <laughs> who will buy the books that I could use. So people are always trying to be economical when they're making these decisions. Right. But what they don't realize, they're being economical with their money, but not with their brain power. They're losing in the amount of information they can absorb. Yeah. Because you're on your digital textbook, you're going to be on your computer, you're going to be checking Facebook and all these social medias. Yeah. And you can't take notes. You can't take notes in the margins. Right. Um, you can't highlight depending yeah, on what program you're using. You can't put bookmarks. Yeah. I have taken online classes where uh, it was optional to get the physical textbook, mm -hmm. but the digital textbook came with the class. Oh. And I, every time I get the physical one, because it's, it's yep. not the same. Yep. And it, it's like you were saying about the landmark. When you read a book, when you go through, you are making memories, reading mm -hmm. that book, and it's physical, it's in your hands, it's, it's totally different. Right. Right. I mean, with, with a real book, you flip the pages and you hear it. Yeah. You smell it. Yeah. You don't taste it. I've never, <laughs> <laughs> never heard anybody doing that. But it's a sensory experience. Whereas flipping through a textbook on your computer, you're doing the exact same motion as you are to flip through Facebook. We use Facebook a lot. That's kind of unfair towards them, but yeah, whatever it is, whatever YouTube, it is. Facebook, MySpace, Netflix. I don't think, yeah, Netflix. Yep. Hotmail, yeah. AOL. Hotmail. No, my dad uses Hotmail. <laughs> my dad still has AOL. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I miss the America Online that we had when we were young. <laughs> yep. Yeah, definitely. And the, like, just the landing page with all the little choices, I just got so into that. Again, appealing to my need for instant gratification. I can just click on the little icon that said beauty and come up <laughs> with makeup tips. And <laughs> as a 13-year-old girl, I was loving it. All right, so the, the last thing I want to talk about today is another physiological side effect of media that's impairing one of our most important brain functions, which is the ability to sleep. And mm. you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Blue light. Yeah. Blue light makes it hard for us to sleep. Explain what blue light is. Yeah, sure. So uh, a lot of times people think blue light is this really fancy thing that only computerized devices produce. But what light is in general, any sort of white light is comprised of the entire spectrum of colors. Um, so you have the ability to, well... What, what produces what we see as blue light is an object that reflects only that blue light wave back to us. So all lighted devices have the capacity to produce blue light. Um, so only blue light prevents the release of melatonin. Did you know that's how it works in the really? brain? Really? No. Yeah, so melatonin is this molecule that's really important in regulating our circadian rhythms right without it we think that it's daytime when it's not uh, and that's why our bodies become aroused or 
that may not be the exact word I want to use, but our bodies become awakened when we're using these devices. We can use this to our advantage, though, and I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself, but whereas blue light decreases the production of melatonin, the opposite of that, amber-colored light actually counteracts this blue light effect. So, you know, have you seen the color wheels? Like yeah. the yeah. So there's complementary colors. Right. Blue right. is a cross from amber or a reddish-colored light. That is interesting. Um, so they've done these experiments where they they give people these amber or rose tinted, if you will, rose tinted glasses, and they have them get on their computers at bedtime. The melatonin isn't suppressed. It's not. It doesn't affect wow. them. So that is just you know proof for people out there that think that colors don't affect our right. mood or our bodies. That's just one more nail in that Absolutely. coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, so that's one way to counteract that effect. Now, now the worst kind of light you can expose yourself to is um, LED lights. Really? So things like the computer screen is a lot worse than a Kindle. And the reason is that Kindles aren't backlit. They are lit... Um, so if, if you're looking at a Kindle, the light actually radiates in from the sides. Yeah. Whereas something like a, what Amazon, is it a, like a fire or what's their tablet yeah, called? Yeah, Amazon Fire. That's yeah, it. or any sort of tablets will, they're backlit. So they're shining those lights directly into your eyeballs. Whereas the Kindle, it's coming in from the sides, it's not gonna have as strong as an effect. So a couple pieces that you can take home from that are, if you love watching your TV at night, pick up a pair of amber colored glasses and counteract the effect that it could have on your sleep. You could do that at home. That is pretty, that's a good idea. They sell those things. Try it out, I'd like to see if we could find that to hold true as well. Yeah. If anybody does that yeah. and has success with it, let us know. Yeah. I actually have a pair of, of these glasses. You should take them home because I don't like to, or being on my phone doesn't really impact my sleep. I'm just, I have this you just have naturally the best wonderful sleep. sleep. You just have the best brain, Betsy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's impervious fabulous. to the digital dilemma. <laughs> yes. Uh, See, I would be a kid that would resist the marshmallow. <laughs> um, I'll let you take them home and try yeah. them out. They were designed for driving at night and getting rid hmm. of the glare on oncoming traffic, but I feel like an idiot when I wear them. So. <laughs> Go ahead and like try them out. Elderly woman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going back to the family dynamics, mm-hmm. that's another thing. Another yeah. problem that families face today is that everyone's isolated. They're in their own room, they're on their own floor, they're on their own screen. Nobody wants to share screen time. Everyone wants their own screen. So that is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Definitely. And then to to the, the parents out there who struggle so much that it can appear to be this positive thing where a kid may be acting up and the only thing that will appease them 
is the digital media. Right. It's a tough spot to be in uh, because you want your kid to be well-behaved, all of those social, all the eyes are looking on you if you have the kid that's misbehaved. And anything you can do to placate them seems good in in the moment. Right. But again... It's a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid. Not a fix. And what we're learning now, the more times you do that, the more often that they're going to become accustomed to instant gratification. And those areas of their brain responsible for delayed gratification aren't being used. Now, as we talk about family dynamics and instant gratification, I think another um, really important example of instant gratification is food. The reason why I'm thinking of this, and I know that you mentioned this topic earlier, is being at restaurants. I was a waitress at one point in my life, and I would do anything to appease these kids because they can be obnoxious. Um, I worked at a restaurant that gave free meals to kids. So parents would bring in their misbehaved children just because it was a free meal that sounds like a nightmare it was terrible (laughs) that sounds awful and so their meals didn't contribute to the overall tab and we got totally gypped when it came to tips wow anyways but yeah (laughs) it's the the uh the instant gratification we get with media is also something that can be seen with food yeah what do we see at restaurants? Now, um, very rarely do I see kids with those coloring placemats that, right. that we used to get mm-hmm. or a box of crayons or toys or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Now we see them holding tablets. Um, and a lot of them have their own tablets. Yeah, um, right. And not only are they not using using that time creatively, like coloring or drawing, but it isolates them even further from their family. This kind of goes mm-hmm. back to what we were just talking about, isolation. At the dinner table, the time when the family is supposed to be the most connected, the time when you're supposed to put all the other things away, whether it's homework, uh, other relationships, television, all that stuff goes away, and mm-hmm. we have family time at the dinner table. Right. That does not exist anymore. Yep. And if you want to see that, just go out to eat Yep. anywhere. Definitely. Let's see what happens. I remember it was when we started getting our cell phones um, and that started becoming a uh, something that was very present in my life. It was still, you know, at the dinner table, still not allowed. Right. Even if the phone rang, we didn't answer it. Yeah. The landline, I mean. Right. Um, it used to be rude to call during dinner time. Yeah. Even we remember that. Yeah. See, we're not as desolate yeah. as we seem. <laughs> yeah. Millennials aren't all that bad. World. No. But absolutely. And the the fast food industry just is is playing to our every desire with instant gratification. Right. Um and it is it's relating to the brain. Again, we expect food within five minutes. I went, my, my new favorite fast food place is Freddy's. 
I don't know if you've been to Freddy's. Yeah, I've been. Yeah, so I call it fast food because it really is. But in my comparison to other fast food companies, I'm sitting there in my car at the drive-thru waiting for like seven minutes. And it's worth it because it's delicious. But at the same time, I'm like, is this even fast food? Right, because you're waiting seven minutes instead of 30 seconds for a Petri dish. Yeah. Petri dish burger. E. E. coli. Um, Yeah. So fast food, I just looked this up. The Mm -hmm. first McDonald's was built in 1953. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we've had fast food since the time of the nuclear family. That Mm -hmm. has been a staple in America. That's been an American tradition. Uh, is is fast food unfortunately that has become an american tradition yes um but it sets us up for for failure in so many ways um like you were talking about with the instant gratification Mm -hmm. also not just fast food but all processed foods everything has sugar in it everything has hidden sugar in it your mcdonald's cheeseburger has hidden sugar in it the french Mm -hmm. fries have has hidden sugar um there's sugar in everything. There is. And sugar is terrible for our brains. Right. It just, and and this is something that I don't even have to explain on a biophysical level, although I will, but everybody's experienced that crash after a high level of sugar intake. Right. Why do we feel that way? Well, our blood or our brain isn't getting as much blood flow as it needs to because of imbalanced blood sugar levels. It's kind of scary to think about that, that we can deprive our brain of very essential, just the basics, oxygen and protein and fat. Um, we can deprive our brains of adequate amounts of that based on our dietary intake. Yeah. And when most people crash, they don't deal with it. Right. They use something else to pick them back up again. Yep. And this sort of repeats this cycle mm-hmm. of using, you know, using something to gain something, get a release, a rush of dopamine, or whatever it may be, and then having a crash and replacing that with something else. Right. Um, right. Something else that's instantly gratifying. We right. don't ride out our sugar lows. Mm-mm. We fix it any way we can and there there's certainly implications for that for how we set up people to use that system and the implications that uh, that has on addiction Mm -hmm. and the rising levels of addiction that we have right now there's a heroin epidemic going on at least well I know it's going on in Chicago I know it's going on here in Colorado Um, they're having these crazy number of cases of heroin addiction in Chicago. And actually, they just cut funding to their opiate addi- uh, addiction program. Well, I believe that. Uh, you're from Chicago, Yeah, aren't you? yeah. I can give my two cents on Chicago <laughs> politics any day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they cut funding to everything, everything important. Um, their education system is so unbelievably heartbreaking. I have a... A friend, uh, this is a a little sidetrack, but I have a friend who's a kindergarten teacher. 35 kids in her kindergarten class. Wow. Straight out of college. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
It's horrible. That sounds like you're at the restaurant you worked at. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit like that. Exactly. <laughs> Underpaid, overworked, screaming uh, kids. Screaming kids. No tips. <laughs> yeah, that's... Wow. It's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, and the same thing is happening out here. Mm -hmm. uh, alarming levels of opiate addiction. And I th this is just one of the things that plays into what sets us up mm -hmm. for addiction. That is the one thing that everyone wants to know. What is it? Is it genetic? Mm -hmm. Are we predisposed? Sure, all those things. Right. But we're also brought up from childhood with, you know, in this culture where everything is right away, everything is right yeah. now. Control how you feel. Um, right now. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's actually a great way to wrap up today's podcast. The podcasts that we're going to be bringing to you in the future revolve around addiction. We're going to be talking about something that's uh, near and dear to our Coloradoan hearts, the Mary Jane, the marijuana, how that affects our brain, or at least what we know about it so far. Um, but I'm sure in the process, we're going to be comparing and contrasting to other drugs, um, even pharmaceuticals. So I'm really excited to get into that topic. Um, I hope all of you listeners out there will join us as we continue to discover why we do what we do, and how our brains react. So from the Gray Matter podcast, this is Betsy, joined by John, just saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, once again, this is Michael Beamer, and thank you for listening to The Digital Dilemma. If you're anything like me, my ears were opened, my eyes were opened. I mean, the idea of immediate gratification becoming the norm. What is that going to do to our future? I hear Whitney Houston in the background up in the clouds singing, children are our future. Well, we're poisoning them with digital issues. I mean, it impacts their ability to absorb information. I thought Betsy did just a wonderful job going over the physiological impacts of media and the way it's impacting their emotional state. Listen, people, we've got to make some changes. Betsy has made that very, very clear. Immediate versus delayed gratification and the impact it has on the brain. Listen, if you're interested in more of this, then go to our Facebook page, Gray Matter Podcast. Put in your comments. Put in your questions. We will answer them. And if we don't, bug us. We'll get to it. Listen, thanks for being a subscriber. Tell your friends, your family, because your words, telling others, is our best advertising. Thank you. We'll see you on the next one. Bye.